You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about a new space that we've never discussed on this show before. We're talking about entrepreneurship through acquisition, ETA. And joining me today is Jason Ehrlich, Principal at Fruition Capital. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And I've said this before when we've covered new sectors. I mean, we're around episode 150 of the show now. Anytime I encounter something new, uh, I get excited. It's an opportunity for me to learn. It's an opportunity for my audience to learn. And so for those in our audience who aren't familiar with ETA, with entrepreneurship through acquisition, why don't we just start there? What is ETA? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great place to start. Um, so ETA, the easiest way to think about it for your audience that's got familiarity with various types of alternative assets is it's micro PE, micro private equity. Um, there's certainly nuance to it that we'll talk about, but in, in its very essence, it is buying small businesses. Now we're talking about sort of north of mom and pop businesses. So we're not talking about the restaurant, the laundromat necessarily, but we're not talking about multi, multi-million dollar businesses. ETA, um, also referred to as search sometimes, the, the operators, the acquisition entrepreneurs who pursue these businesses will refer to themselves as searchers. They will go out there and they will actively seek to find, acquire, and subsequently operate a business that can be doing anywhere from, let's say, 500,000 in EBITDA up to maybe 3 million. And we'll talk a little bit about why that niche is very attractive to this group. Um, but ultimately, there is this absolute uh, tsunami being referred to as the silver tsunami in some circles, where 55% or a little north of that of businesses in this kind of segment that I just referenced are owned by boomers. And naturally, where boomers are, you know, sort of in that demographic bump in the snake, so to speak, they're rapidly retiring. And so there's this influx of these, call them lower, lower middle market businesses that are coming out there that need to be sold. And acquisition entrepreneurs are the folks who have decided instead of going and pursuing a job in investment banking or private equity or consulting, which is a path I have in my own history, um, that they're going to come out and they're going to go find and acquire these businesses and run them. And there's several different paths sort of in this ETA space, um, two main ones that I'll talk about, right? So you have traditional search funds, which are largely run by, think of them like venture capital funds. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're, you know, they'll say, Mr. MBA, Mr. Future Operator, uh, we're going to pay you a salary for two years. And your job is just to go out there and find a business that we like and go buy that business. But when you buy it, you know, we own 70% of your equity and you're essentially like a hired CEO, except you found the business and you're going to retain like a 30% equity interest. And for some searchers, um, that path can make a lot of sense, right? It, it definitely lowers the risk to the, to the searcher, to the entrepreneur. The other side of the market that is much more emerging, growing, and we'll talk more about it in depth, it's the side that we play in. It's referred to as the self-funded side. So these are folks who have stashed up a little bit of you know, personal capital, or they have a spouse whose salary can float them for some time. They'll execute the search themselves, and they'll go out there, they'll work with brokers, they'll find a business, and all on their own dime. And then when it comes time to actually facilitate the acquisition, they'll go out there and they'll raise 
some equity to facilitate that acquisition. And instead of giving up 70% of the business, like they might have to a search fund, the self-funded searchers flip that and they'll typically retain 70%, give up maybe 30 or so, depending on the deal, uh, to their investors. And so that's the side of the market that we see growing really rapidly. Um, like I mentioned, in general, with this demographic tidal wave, we see the space in itself growing rapidly. And so it's something that we're very excited about. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been thinking entrepreneurship through acquisition, something that's totally new to me. Um, maybe some of the nomenclature is, and and certainly I think, you know, the 70-30, 30-70 being backed by a fund, that's new to me as well. But uh, a couple things that I intuitively get, uh, you know, number one, just the idea of an entrepreneur wanting to acquire something, something that I have done myself in the sense that I'm an entrepreneur. I also have some personal capital. And I've realized as I've gotten older, I'm not always the best ideas guy. Like I'm not the guy who's going to come up with the next, you know, Twitter idea or or, or whatever. Um, but I'm pretty good at nuts and bolts you know, growth oriented marketing, that kind of, so sometimes it's, it de-risks entrepreneurship. If you can acquire something with some existing EBITDA, some existing cash flow, and then you can say, you know what, I, I know 1200 ways to improve operations right off the bat that are just kind of like stepping over the one foot fence that Warren Buffett talks about. Like, I don't need the next trillion dollar idea, right? You're hitting the nail on the head and de-risking is kind of the name of the game, right? Because as we, anyone who's done the startup world knows, going from zero to one is incredibly hard. Going from one to X is is a lot easier. It's a different skill set, like you alluded to as well. But I think a lot of would-be entrepreneurs that think about the startup route and they look at that 90 plus percent failure rate, it's literally inverted in the entrepreneur in the acquisition entrepreneur space right mm -hmm. you have over 90% of these businesses that are being bought specifically by self-funded searchers have an ebitda at or above where they bought it into the future so only 10% of them even have a decline in ebitda much much less to say they go to zero so risk inversion absolutely okay jason my other question thought i'm going to give you my thesis you can tell me if this is correct or incorrect you mentioned a lot of these businesses, lower, lower middle market, um, are owned by baby boomers who are retiring. And, you know, reading between the lines, they're going to be too small to be in the strike range for like a normal private equity fund. And uh, I'm a millennial. Uh, I'm not going to speak for Gen X, but like speaking for millennials, I don't think there's just thousands and thousands of millennials out there, you know, trying to acquire businesses like this. What I'm getting at is, it sort of seems to me that the market dynamics would make this a buyer's market, right? In the sense that there's going to be a, a a glut, a whole generation of people trying to sell these businesses that aren't really attractive acquisitions to most private equity buyers. So is it a is it a buyer's market? It very much is a buyer's market, um, and it keeps the acquisition multiples extremely attractive in this particular niche that we're talking about. And I know you've talked on previous interviews about kind of the importance of making money when you buy, not when you sell, and making sure that you have the right valuation multiple in place on the front end. It's absolutely true in this space. Um, the search fund world in general began about 10 years ago with the Stanford study came out. And so traditional search funds have been around that long. The self-funded space is much newer, maybe 10 or so of the top MBA programs in the country now have like ETA 
concentrations, like you could have a concentration in consulting or investment banking or, or whatever. Um, it's a small, small club relative to the massive amount of businesses coming on the market here. So definitely now it's a buyer's market. I think when you look at where the demographics are, it's poised to stay that way for a number of years. And you know, there's two sides of that coin because you can say, okay, right now as a buyer, that's a great news story. What about in five, seven years when I want to go sell, you know, I'm going to be in a similar situation. And to sort of preempt that question, I think for the searchers that we work with, the thesis is to pick something up sub $2 million in EBITDA, but as close to that as you can get. And at that point, you don't have to do anything crazy. You don't have to have any major bolt-on acquisitions or anything like that to grow the thing organically over the next five to seven years to a, to a point where a private equity firm would be interested in scooping that up or perhaps another strategic buyer. So when we're underwriting our deals, you know, we're not assuming a bunch of multiple expansion in there, but I think that the reality is we try to take advantage of the buyer's market that definitely exists right now and then exit to a different audience at a higher multiple down the line. I love it. I love it. And uh, in, in my little marketing tip of the day, any ETA people listening, it is amazing if you get a local business just overhauling the Google reviews. Mm -hmm. Just that, what a difference that can have on sales and revenue when you permute that over multiple years of time. There's just, there's so much low hanging fruit like that, right? All around the business world. And I'll tell you, with these being boomer run businesses, I mean, obviously they're doing millions of dollars in EBITDA. And in many cases, these are successful businesses. But when you get in there, they're paper and pen businesses. And so your millennial operator who kind of grew up in tech, who is a systems thinker, they go in there with the idea of refreshing all these things. And of course, you don't want to break something that's working. You want to go in there and make sure you stabilize the thing. But there are often so many opportunities to not turn it into a tech business, but to bring in some technology, some efficiencies, um, things that the, the owner operator has just settled into a routine of doing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But to your point, Google reviews, there's a hundred examples of levers like that, that entrepreneurs can pull without any huge amount of additional capital or risk. Yeah. And my thing is I always like to pull those levers in the marketing. And then it comes to the real hard work that, you know, ma managing humans and other things. And I'm like, oh, help. I need a partner. And yeah, you know, <laughs> it's real work. <laughs> well, uh, Jason, I want to talk about your journey because this is uh, an interesting space to have landed in. How did you end up in this space? Oh, a long meandering road and a pretty organic one, I think. So I've always been one personally to save probably on the more extreme side of savers and invest that additional savings. And ever since I came out of college way back when, that's been my approach. And for years and years, it was all you know publicly traded equities and index funds and all of that. And then maybe in the 2014-15 timeframe, the light bulb kind of went off. I'm really exposed to publicly traded assets and these things have a high degree of correlation. And so I set off on my alts journey. And, and just, they trade at really high multiples. To well, that's that, by the no, way. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Um, I, I set off on the journey entirely with selfish intent. And I started, you know, just analyzing the various asset classes out there. And I came to commercial real estate and specifically like workforce multifamily as a really nice sort of risk adjusted return. I am myself sort of a risk averse person, although not entirely risk averse to be willing to play in this kind of space, but I don't want to invest in startups with a 90% failure rate. And I didn't want to invest in, you know, 
assets that had wild swings with the cycles and so forth. So multifamily apartments seemed like a really good match for me. So I just started investing there as an LP, put in money with a number of different sponsors, often sponsors that I would find through podcasts like this and network and interview. And, and that's how I'd make my investments. And then after years of doing that, a light bulb sort of went off in my head. I've always had an entrepreneurial bent despite having W-2 jobs. And I mentioned I was in management consulting for a number of years. And I said, what are these deal sponsors have or know or do that I don't? And the answer was nothing really. And so uh, maybe six-ish years ago now, I put together my first investment firm, which is still up and running, that's Blue Sun, to invest in commercial multifamily. And I did that for a number of years, um, sort of putting together my own investor base. And um, we syndicated for individual assets and we syndicated for funds as well. So I got experience on both sides of that. But in the intervening time, for my own personal investments, I continued to sort of spread my, my wings and my interest areas. And I got into various sectors within commercial real estate, like self-storage, industrial, some you know office conversion to hotel, things like that. Um, I got into utility scale solar development. I've heard you talk about private debt funds as becoming more of a new thing. You know, I've been in some of those uh, and, and then eventually direct business investing. And so all of that's been going on while my GP activities were focused in commercial real estate. Um, but then a little over a year ago, I came onto this concept of ETA through conversations with a friend and I was just completely swept away by it. I, you know, I looked at the thesis around the, the silver tsunami and the demographic tidal wave, and I underwrote a number of businesses and I saw kind of the power of these low multiples. And especially I'll say when you compare it um, to real estate, you use uh, SBA debt very commonly in these acquisitions. And while a lot of the lending world is shut down, SBA debt is like 80% guaranteed by the government. So lenders are still very much keeping the pocketbooks open with that. So, and while sorry, Jason, to, to interrupt, I, uh, just to, to pause you there. Yeah. I think that's a really important point access to financing. But then one other thing I wanted to ask. Yeah. If I'm comparing this to multifamily or commercial real estate assets. What cap rate am I buying at? You know, it's, it's, is this like buying at a 20 cap? I, or, or, I mean, in my experience, sometimes the micro PE multiples are like insane, like insanely good if you're willing, you know, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. 2025 cap. You'd never hear of it in real estate, but in a, in business like this, it's commonplace. And, and these aren't, you hear something like a 25 cap and if you're the real estate part of your brain, the part of your brain that's wired to real estate is like, well, this must be a house of cards. <laughs> class and class the, F asset. <laughs> yeah. Like what am I getting into? And in this case, it might just be like, well, uh, I'm going to make up a, you know, dumb example. Uh, this is a workshop that makes manufacturers pipe fittings and it has nine employees and, you know, or, or whatever. And you have to be willing to show up there and and manage it. And like that's that's essentially the price of admission is saying, okay, I'm willing to manage this business. And there's a, sh- a shortage of people willing to manage businesses, right? Who absolutely do the, the skill set and the time commitment associated with running a business is entirely different than being the asset manager of a multifamily building where mm-hmm. you've got to put professional third-party managers in place. Oftentimes they're the ones with the FTEs. It's much more of an asset management activity. That's not really the case when you're buying one of these operating businesses. And so the multiples reflect that in a big way. Um, but I was kind of coming back just to finish the thought about how I found the space. Mm-hmm. I really gave some hard thought 
to becoming a searcher myself. And I started putting together the materials that I'd need to diligence deals and to build a deal funnel and you know the ecosystem of vendors that would support this. I was thinking about it hard. And then I kind of stopped before I kicked off my own search. And I did a little bit of a look in the mirror and a little soul searching. And at this season of my own life, family is super important to me. And I have uh, a 21 month old and a two month old at home. And as it is today, you know, I get to see my kids for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I never, you know, I never miss a bedtime. So that family time was super important to me. And I looked at what life would be like as the CEO of a $2 million EBITDA business with, you know, potentially a long commute and 70 hour weeks and the stress of, you know, managing teams of employees, fire drills that would come up. And so I kind of said, you know, for my family, this isn't the right thing for me to do right now. Mm -hmm. But I stepped back from it. I could not get the thesis of ETA out of my head. So I just kept thinking about how I could add value to this community without buying a business myself. And the answer that wasn't too long in coming was, well, this, the self-funded searcher side of the market is the Wild West, right? Search funds, like I, I mentioned at the top, they don't really need me. That's a sophisticated space. But the self-funded side, these people generally haven't raised capital before in most cases. Well, and I'm sorry, so, back, back to the search, just so if I could ask about them for a second. Yeah. Are are they basically hiring fresh MBAs who are willing to do this? And, and like, so, yeah, almost always. Okay. So they're just sourcing MBAs, paying them salaries, finding that, you know, that I, I get it. Whereas what you're talking about the self-funded, this may or may not be an MBA, but it's a it's a person with probably some sort of uh, entrepreneurial ex- or, or management experience in a particular industry or in business in general. Yeah, um, oftentimes, yes. And I mean, to be able to do a self-funded search, to have the risk tolerance and the financial assets to support that, oftentimes these are folks with a little bit more experience and tenure, which in our mind is its own initial filter. Right. It kind of. I'm, I'm, yeah. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm going to, I'm going to take that over the MBA, Jason, over the yeah. MBA, you know, a, a, an entrepreneur who's kind of been in the trenches before, you know, even, even in failure. I mean, man, is that valuable experience sometimes if nothing you else, you know, what you don't have to for. sell me on it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it's, it's not a hard requirement of ours. Like we do have a number of MBAs we work with, but the difference is it's not the MBA who's had a corporate job for three years and then went and got an MBA. It's the MBA who's been out there for a decade, 15 years, and then went back and got an MBA. And they've got experience running a PL, running teams of folks, maybe running their own business. Those are the entrepreneurs we're interested in. Yeah. I mean, you can almost, it, honestly, the small business world and mindset, it is so foreign to the corporate world. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, and, and I've never really worked in the corporate world, but I still know enough people and interact with corporations enough, you know, wow, it's just different mindset, different incentives. Uh, you know, every business culture is different, but so you're really focusing then on finding these self-funded, self-funded searchers or sorry. Self-fund- are- yeah. Self-funded searchers. That's our bread and butter because okay. that that's kind of where my, my personal journey ends into today, which yeah. is I looked at that self-funded searcher side of the market and a huge stressor for these folks is putting together enough equity for their deals, or they're kind of holding that limiting belief of I have X hundred thousand dollars. Therefore, the biggest business I can buy is Y in EBITDA. And we want to come in there and sort of break that paradigm and say, look, it's really okay and often beneficial 
to take investors' money. It lets you buy a bigger business that's going to be way more durable, able to withstand economic shocks. It's going to have a management infrastructure in place to where you're not buying a job. You're actually buying an operating business that you can run. And because so we, if, if, you, if you acquire too small, you're not really the manager. You're the manager and the supervisor, right? Like, yeah. it, and, and you have a team of five people or whatever, whereas once you're at a certain scale, you have a couple supervisors or you have a team of 15 or 20, like you can take a week off vacation. You know, there's just, it's a big enough team. And you can work on the business instead of working in the business. And that's the real golden ticket to be able to apply your skill set in a strategic way, rather than having to be taking customer orders and putting out fires all day. Right. And that's, so, that's the difference between the micro business and the small business, which I think exactly. you, you kind of a, alluded to. Okay. So you're finding these self-funded searchers and by giving them access to capital through your fund, you're enabling them to do transactions on a larger scale. And I mean, it, you know, the wheels of my mind are turning. I'm thinking, well, that already creates value in the sense that if you can acquire 2 million in EBITDA and grow it to 5 million in EBITDA, the multiple on 5 million in EBITDA is much higher than if you bought 800K in EBITDA and grew that and to, grew to two six or Com two. Completely, completely agree. And that's a big part of our thesis. And so that's a major value driver, like you said, but we, we try to go further than that with our searchers, right? A lot of the other folks that they'll raise from, there's a small community of investors that like this space and they'll plunk down 100K on this deal, 100K on that deal. And the searchers can kind of make the rounds for this community and try to piece it together. Um, but the problem is when you're that investor, um, you're not super invested, cliche, in the business. Like you're not going to have a ton of time to sit on the board, to stay involved, to provide sort of advisory. You're an, an LP and you're just going to kind of wait for your return. That's not our approach because we're writing larger checks and we have a, a team of folks. It's not just a single investor. We stay involved, right? We take a seat on the board of that company. We make sure that they're connected with like our ecosystem of vendors. We provide advisory, like consulting kind of guidance services. And it's as the searcher needs it. So we don't come in there and force anything on them like a traditional search fund might, but we try to be very much, you know, the smart money, so to speak, where when there's an issue or a question or a need, they can come to us and they know they'll have sort of an intelligent ear to bend on that business challenge. Sure. So what, you know, I, I, my example of a business, what, what was it? Manufacturing pipe fitting. I'm, yeah. uh, I want the real example. What are the, what are the real types of businesses that are in your suite? I, like, I understand, you know, they're in the one to 2 million EBITDA range or yeah. whatever, but like, what kind of businesses are there? They're manufacturing businesses. So our parameters are, it's all around this thesis that you could call enduring profitability. So we want a business that has been profitable in a proven way that we have every reason to believe it will continue to be profitable. And so there's a, a book that Harvard has put out. It's called the HBR Guide to Buying Businesses. It kind of outlines this whole thesis around enduring profitability. We very much subscribe to that. So I would say it's less about, is it a manufacturing business versus a service business? The characteristics we look for we want to see a B2B company that really has a repeat customer base where it's the same companies that have been buying that service or product year after year after year after year. Low customer churn, long customer tenure. It's a reason to believe that revenue will be super durable. We're looking to 
kind of avoid anything that is highly disruptable, like technology or anything that's highly cyclical, like um, construction or energy. Um, we're really looking for those slow, boring, kind of old economy type businesses. And beyond that, there's a whole series of kind of second order criteria where we don't want to see any major concentration with just a couple key customers. We don't want to see any dependence on a single major supplier. And maybe most importantly, we want to be able to pinpoint what's that kind of durable competitive advantage that lets them stay profitable like that. So in some businesses, you know, kind of natural geographic monopolies form based on the nature of the business. In other businesses, you know, you have something that's part of the supply chain of a much larger business and it's a tiny part of their cost structure, but it's a really hard piece to kind of re-engineer. And so, you know, there's, uh, they're very hard to disintermediate from the supply chain. So that's kind of the, the academic uh, view of that. Mm-hmm. What that manifests, like what it looks like in the businesses we invest in, I'll give you the example of like a, a commercial uh, towing wrecker and repair business where you'll have a, a company that, you know, we're invested in. It has, um, in the state that it's located in, it has an exclusive agreement with the Department of Transportation for about any 100, 100 miles of interstate where they're the only company that can provide these services. And we're not talking about the people that tow your car. If you see a semi truck broken down on the side of the road or fleet vehicles, mm-hmm. you know, they're the ones out there uh, towing them. And they have these, again, longstanding contracts and they're out there just doing the thing over and over and over and over again. Uh, we got another and, and- one. Sorry, yeah, just, just to pinpoint that, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense in the sense that there aren't that many people who want to manage that company. Mm-hmm. And then of the people who want to manage that company, not that many of them have access to capital. Sure. Right. So, so that, that's an example of a business that might, it might be a cash cow. You might run the numbers and say, this business is going to grow for the foreseeable future, but it's just a little too small for that traditional private equity company to say, you know what, we'll, we'll pay up for this. And it's exactly right. Professional management. And in this instance, I talked about the geographic kind of monopolies and that forms up with this, right? Because in or- you can only operate these heavy duty tractor trailer things within a certain radius of your home base and fuel is expensive. And so it's very expensive for another shop to come build a headquarters, put in all the CapEx needed to build a fleet like that in a turf where you're already well servicing the customer needs. So, you know, you definitely have a geographic limitation on your expansion. There, there's plenty of other ways to grow in terms of additional revenue drivers and pricing and all that, but you're pretty well insulated from additional competitors just swooping in. Totally. So, so sorry, you were getting to another type of example. I think that, that was a great example. Yeah. Well, thanks. So another example that we have, it's uh, a manufacturer of specialty coated wires and cables. And so, you know, if you think about a John Deere tractor or any other kind of outdoor machinery, there's all these kind of specific wires and cables that go inside of that. This business provides those based on the specifications provided by these other manufacturers, just spools and spools of these wire. But again, you know, wire is this much for those not, you know, tiny finger amount of the cost structure of a tractor. But once your engineers have already got all the specs for that right, the amount of rework and everything required to go find a different provider of this wiring is prohibitive. And so they nestle into the supply chain, the value chain in these larger manufacturers, and they just serve them year over year after year after year. Totally. And so you're looking for companies like this that have EBITDA and let's say the one to $2 million range, 
they none they don't have a single client or customer that represents more than 25 or 20 percent or x percent of their sales and this is a company that you know if they're doing one and a half uh, million in ebitda maybe they're for sale for what six million bucks or right mm-hmm. and it's just like who, who's gonna buy them who, who wants to run it and who has but you know so it's it, that's where you kind of come in as an uh, acquirer you have some leverage, I imagine, to yep. you know uh, SBA financing or structure, deal structuring. With, with these kind of acquisitions, are you typically doing like an earnout to de-risk it, or how do you actually structure the acquisition? Yeah, so there is always some component of debt. Most commonly, it's an SBA loan, but there's also some traditional lenders that provide some pretty attractive options here, and then almost always there is a component of either a seller loan, seller carry, or like an earnout. And when it is a seller loan, oftentimes there are components of that that are forgivable if certain hurdles aren't hit as it relates to A, the owner transition, or B, if they're making some representation about you know, the current level of earnings being durable, if they're not hit, you know, there'll be uh, ways er, to claw Earn out by another name or, or sort of if I squint, I can still call that an earn Exactly. Out. Yep. Exactly right. Yep. And then the remainder is equity brought by the searcher and the outside investors they find. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, just to zoom out in in my experience with private equity, I mean, I'm, I've been a GP, I've been an LP, I've been an entrepreneur. So I've, I personally have had experience in a wide variety of deals. My best deal I've ever done as an investor, I can't say I was a pure LP. I was more of a strategic LP or GP LP or whatever you want to call it was in this micro PE space, mm-hmm. just kind of a boring business that has grown and continues to grow. And if you bought a similar type of company as a publicly traded stock or whatever, the multiple you would have paid would have been crazy. And then, you know, it would have been that, you know, a, a stock or a large company would be competing in a much more competitive landscape. Whereas with a lot of these smaller firms, like the niche manufacturers that you've mentioned, the riches is in the niches, right? And That's again, right. And again, whether it's a million and a half in EBITDA or, or you're able to double it to 3 million in EBITDA, it's still in the grand scheme of things to a, a corporation or a big private equity firm. They're saying the juice is not worth the squeeze. Nobody wants to move to a suburb of Omaha, Nebraska or you know wherever. Right. So it's just if if you're willing to come in and do the work, I don't want to say it's it's easy pickings. I mean, you always you always have to earn it, right? But the underlying economics are favorable. And that to me as an investor is so important, right? Because and I think that's a Warren Buffett quote, isn't it? That something to the effect, I'll bet on the average manager in in the industry with good economics rather than take the world's best manager in an industry with poor economics. And I think the underlying economics in this space, provided you execute you know, due diligence, you have a good manager and so on, the underlying economics are just quite good. I mean, buying at a 20 cap, the 25 cap, it really is hard to go wrong unless everything implodes, right? It, it solves a lot of problems, it does. And I think the challenge for the average investor is this market is hugely opaque. Someone like yourself, I mean, you're plugged into this alt world more than anybody could be. You've got access to some of these business deals and you know the people that would go and buy them. But I think back to myself when I started my alts journey all those years ago, I wouldn't have the first clue how to go find someone who is going to try to buy this type of business and try to get myself on their cap table. And I also wouldn't know how to 
diligence the business and their business plan and double check their underwriting. But access, I think, you know, you and I can sit here and agree that the underlying economics of these are, are often extremely favorable for investors. Um, and the risk adjusted returns and, and tax advantage returns pretty superior to what you could get in publicly traded markets. The problem oftentimes is access. Obviously, they're less liquid as well. We kind of have to take that as a, if there's downside, liquidity is definitely a downside, but transparency and access is probably the biggest challenge in my view for the average LP. So how is Fruition Capital changing this? Can you tell us more about your fund and, and how it works then, just the, the structure of the fund, You know how you plan to build out the portfolio? Yeah. So what we do is instead of out there you know, finding businesses and working with business brokers, I'm out there finding searchers. So if you think about kind of the horse and jockey model, I've put myself in the center of these various searcher communities that exist, and I make fruition visible, and I make our value proposition about what we can bring visible, and the jockeys will come and you know, we'll decide who do we align with, who do we think is a high you know, quality person, ethical right set of values and has the the soft and hard skills needed to run these businesses we put together sort of this stable of jockeys and then they're out there searching all across the united states by the way we're geographically agnostic within the states um they'll find these businesses and then they'll come back and they'll say hey we've got a relationship you already like me as an operator do you like this business that i found as well and if the answer is yes and we say we like you jockey we like the horse that you're getting ready to ride we'll go ahead and we'll make an investment. And because we see, you know, we've we've only been at this within this year. So fruition as an entity is quite new, but we've had over 180 conversations with searchers at this point in time and the funnel remains really strong. And so some of those conversations that we had almost a year ago, you know, we still have people just now finding deals. The average search can be 2 years long. So it can be quite a long cycle for these folks, but we build a, a big stable of searchers gives us the opportunity to review and see a lot of deals across a lot of industries with a lot of different sort of investor terms and, and capital structures and pick out just the few that we like. And so what we offer to our LPs is number one, not only can we you know get you into this asset class, but rather than just placing all your chips in a single business, in each fund that we're putting together, there's going to be seven to eight businesses that are pooled together almost always from different geographies, almost always in different industries. And so you have the ability to kind of access the asset class with some built-in diversification to spread out that risk across these businesses. Got it. Okay. Now you mentioned that this space is pretty opaque. I mean, you know, alternative investments themselves are opaque, but obviously there are degrees of opacity within. within, So this is a very opaque space. Do you think that is that going to continue? Do you think it's becoming more transparent? Or I guess what you know, where where do you see the space five years from now? Is it going to grow? Is it going to mature? I think it's growing tremendously because we talked about the demographic element of this, why there's more and more supply coming on it on the market. And you know, these MBA programs aren't dumb. And so you've seen the top 10 programs create either just specific courses or entire concentrations in this. And I think as the market gets larger and larger with the number of deals that are available, you're going to see more of these programs start to turn out additional searchers. Will it you know, catch up and reach an equilibrium? I think we're years and years and years away from that, but I absolutely think it's growing on both the supply and demand sides of the market. 
I also think anytime you have a dynamic like that, things are going to get more professionalized. So mm -hmm. right now it's the absolute wild west, but you look at search funds, for example, that have been around for a decade and it's a lot more professionalized and standardized than like the self-funded side is. So, you know, will someone come along and create a, you know, I, I heard your fundrise interview the other day. Um, I actually have a, a good buddy who is very uh, early on in the creation of that. But, um, you know, will someone come along and create a platform like that, that sort of democratizes, creates a, an ecosystem? You know, maybe as it grows large enough, the carrot's got to be there. So today doesn't exist five years from now, maybe. But we've seen that there, I don't want to say there's no one doing what we're doing. There's maybe one or two other sort of similar players in this entire space. So, you know, our hope is to get in there, be early, kind of create that trusted brand, that place to go for both searchers and investors. Um, and, you know, as the ecosystem changes kind of down the line, as it matures, hopefully we'll be a part of that professionalization. Absolutely. And and Jason, I, I again, I can see that underlying value, right? So, Definitely wish you guys the best of luck. I think it's a super interesting model and and micro private equity and now ETA, new nomenclature for me, but this 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 is a space I personally want to watch closely. And as an LP, I have to say it's something I want to watch closely because I just feel like I maybe it can get more value for my investment dollar. Um, again, going back to when you buy at the 20 cap, it can solve a lot of problems. So mm -hmm. Jason, again, I appreciate you coming on, sharing all these insights, being so transparent with your strategy, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about Fruition Capital? Yeah, thanks, Andy. So our website is out there, fruitioncap.com slash investors is probably the best page for your folks to land on. So fruitioncap.com slash investors. You can also reach me directly at jason at fruitioncap.com. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn and the platform formerly known as Twitter and wherever else. All right. Jason, thanks again for joining the show today. Thanks, Andy. It's a pleasure. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.